Politic Podcast, the show for normal Americans. From this undisclosed bunker, here's your host, Tony Reed. being done to stop the hate and the county sheriff who will no longer be the spokesperson on this case one day after he described what the suspect told investigators going on to say yesterday was a really bad day for him the police in the suburbs have had to replace the officer who runs their briefings after captain jay baker said this about the accused murderer he understood um the gravity of it and he was pretty much fed up and kind of at the end of his rope and um, and yesterday was a really bad day for him and this is what he did. Saying that the 21 year old had a bad day felt ridiculously insensitive to friends and family of the people killed. In a statement the sheriff apologized saying that these words were not intended to disrespect any of the victims or the gravity of this tragedy. Baker was trying unsuccessfully to share what the alleged gunman told investigators but now an old Facebook post of his is causing even more concern. It reads, place your order while they last, above pictures of t-shirts that read COVID-19 imported virus from China. It's the same message that people bringing flowers to the memorials tonight find hurtful. Social media also jumped on how Captain Jay Baker framed the killer's mindset. Um, and yesterday was a really bad day for him and this is what he did. Making matters worse, Baker's anti-Asian Facebook post last year, promoting t-shirts with the message, COVID-19, imported virus from China. As investigators continue their work, one official is facing scrutiny of his own over a 2020 Facebook post showing a racist, anti-Asian image related to coronavirus and for these comments about the suspect. Yesterday was a really bad day for him and this is what he did. Tonight, the Cherokee County Sheriff writes in part that the captain's words were not intended to disrespect any of the victims, the gravity of this tragedy, or express empathy for the suspect. John Ralston being on the West Coast, um... There's, there's certainly uh, the Asian American populations are larger, uh, more integrated, and yet we've been seeing these hate crimes out there, too. Uh, we have indeed, Chuck, and it's all very distressing. And, and even though, as you pointed out, it's unclear whether the Atlanta shootings were a hate crime or not, it's good that this discussion is occurring. You know, Eddie said there's a through line uh, in in this program. Uh, I think it is that words matter, Chuck. And uh, while this existed long before Donald Trump, the fact that he is, he had an utter lack of empathy during COVID and that he was so desperate to escape political responsibility that he continually used phrases like the China virus, right. that clearly has exacerbated uh, these problems based on the stats that you just uh, put up there, Chuck. Right. And, and no law is going to solve that. And this is a place where Joe Biden and uh, especially Kamala Harris yep. Uh, can do a lot of good, I think. Well, look, unfortunately, I'm out of time there. And all these elected officials, when they talk about 
China, the country, as a rival and an adversary to this country, be careful of your words. That matters, too. And I know there's a lot of fear that as the rivalry heats up with China, that these these hateful incidents will. A larger story here that may not be addressed today, but is a is one that we have to address in light of what happened uh, in Atlanta, which is are we facing a spring and summer of uh, you know, mass casualty events uh, as we come out, as people congregate. Uh, and that is something that the Biden White House will have to address as well. Juliet, how can that be? How can it be that after a year of basic yeah. quarantine in the country, the first thing we do as Americans is go back to mass shootings? So, I mean, how can so, that be? So, uh, yeah, so it's a distinctly uh, and sadly uh, American problem, right? I mean, this is something that is so unique to us that, it, that I think it's hard for Americans to grasp just how uh, how accepting we are of this kind of violence. I mean, we get, we get upset and thoughts and prayers, but nothing ever changes. Here's something that's interesting, however. Uh, we have a belief that we were all inside. Nothing happened last year. There were uh, not mass shootings like we've seen in the past at schools, uh, theaters, and supermarkets. Uh, but gun violence was actually up 25%. We don't know <clears throat> if that's because of, uh, of psychological stresses, uh, suicides, or whatever else. So uh, I know a lot of people are saying, well, America is back. You know what? America never left. We have a gun problem uh, and is one that was persistent through uh, COVID, but one that may take on more deadly uh, consequences because people are congregating and out again. Chief Oates, uh, again, you were in Aurora. We know that the suspect is in custody. He was injured. They have not released any details about who he was, but we did see footage of uh, a white General, a white man, he was wearing shorts, no shoes, no shirt. He seemed to be bleeding down his leg, and he was handcuffed. And welcome back to Flavor Politics Podcast. It is the 24th of March, year of our Lord, 2021. And fuck all you media folks. Fuck all of you. Today we're going to cover the Atlanta shooting. We're going to cover the Boulder shooting. We're going to cover the gun grab. The border. Some covid Trans and some woke. But that intro is the most garbage representation of what our media is, what the left is, and how sorry our world has become. That sheriff has now been ruined because a bunch of people took a snippet of a conversation and decided to go hip deep and stupid. And understand the backdrop. 25 people were killed in Chicago over the weekend. 2020 were shot on Monday. They don't care. They don't care at all. Aaron Rupar was one of the guys. My brain is so broken. He went into the bad day on a failure to call the network for what it is because they didn't cover the shooting right. Bad day narrative now being echoed by the CCP. Stellar work, Rupar. Chinu News. Eight lives taken. Sick of the Asian and the killer were just having a bad day. Stop the hate. Fight racism. Because he was the first to break the he said it was a bad day. Oliver Darcy, CNN and MSNBC are both talking briefing from Boulder Police right now. Fox, which also purports to be a news network, is not. And then the whole world says, oh, interesting, because by the time this got out and went fucking viral, they're no longer covering it. They're covering gun grab. 
because the white guy, as you saw in that CNN clip in the intro, all of a sudden became Arab. But don't you worry. We got people who are still calling him a fucking white guy. But I want to make sure you understand. And we're going to cover this from many angles. But I'm going to do a Tucker segment first. But I want you to look at this picture. 68-year-old Asian man beating the fuck up. This is on social media. Them saying, can you help us? Find this man. The stats didn't change, boys and girls. Almost 28% of all Asian violence is African American. They're not going to talk about that because they're liars. And the most disgusting thing about this and Boulder and everything is when it's a white man, they talk about racism. When the shooter isn't a white man, they talk about gun control. But they never talk about the simple facts of the case. And when we segue to Boulder, the facts are very interesting. And none of those are coming out. Jennifer Rubin lectures two Korean American women about how to be better Korean Americans. Representative Michelle Steele and Young Kim, the first GOP Korean American congresswoman, discussed the impact of the rising anti-Asian hate and harassment, their personal experience, and their hopes of diversity in the Republican Party. Jennifer Rubin, why don't they denounce those in their party who fan anti-Asian bigotry? Huh. Because maybe saying Wuhan virus isn't actually evil. It came from Wuhan. Maybe saying China virus isn't actually stoking Asian hate because it motherfucking came from China. And every network called it Wuhan and China virus. Until COVID became the name. Peter Beinart. A journalist. Condemning anti-Asian violence isn't enough. America's leaders must also combat the panic about China that is fueling it. The panic about China. What, facts? Facts? We need to stop talking about facts? I mean, we can stop talking about facts. Oh, we do talk. stop talking about facts. We don't ever talk about facts. Facts mean absolutely nothing. We don't talk about the true cause of Asian violence. We don't get into the details of the Boulder guy. We don't talk about mental health. We don't talk about how taking everybody's AR-15 isn't going to stop people from getting AR-15s. Nor doing mass shootings. We just want to punish a a segment of society that doesn't vote for us. Because we're Democrats. We're the media. After murders, New York Times cries white racism against Asian blames Trump's China virus. You knew what was coming. I'm not I didn't play this one. I'm not gonna play this. Lincoln Project member blames Ronald Reagan for the shooting. Ronald Reagan. So, going to put a Tucker in here. He did a good segment on this last night. Then we're going to break down the million ways that the media got the Boulder shooting wrong. In other words, CNN told you, we don't really know anything about what just happened. We do think a, quote, white man did it. That was CNN's first observation. What they cared about most was the gunman's race. 
To Sinan, that was the all-important thing, not the 10 lying dead or the grieving children they left behind. No, the shooter's skin color. So this is what wokeness is. This is how you see the world when you've been so corrupted by ideological mania that you consider even a mass shooting a perfect opportunity to push your race-based political agenda. He was a white man. That's all you needed to know. Then we learn the suspect's name. He is Ahmed Aliwi Alisa. And that fact raised an immediate problem for the race mongers. Does Ahmed, Ali Ahmed Alisa qualify as a white man? No, honestly, you may be wondering, who cares? He just shot 10 people. That's the only fact that mattered. And by the way, for what it's worth, Ahmed Alisa looked pretty pale to us too. Again, not that decent people ought to care one way or the other about his race. But to the bigots in charge of America's increasingly convoluted and politicized system of racial classification, his race is the only thing that mattered. They've decided that people called Ahmed Alaliwi Alisa cannot be white men, no matter what they look like. People with names like that, that are oppressed, therefore they're not white. Now that's insanity, but it's where we are right now. It's where they've taken us. So of course, once we learned his name, the entire storyline, <clears throat> excuse me, had to be rewritten immediately. Amy Siskind is a former finance ghoul who now sends angry tweets for a living. Siskin is highly popular in the so-called progressive community online. Siskin's first assessment of the crime was this, quote, It was almost certainly a white man, again. If he were black or brown, he would be dead. That was Amy Siskin's hot take, and lots of people agreed with her. Then the shooter's identity emerged, and of course Siskin had to change her view immediately. Please don't mention his name, Siskin instructed her followers. We wouldn't want to, quote, glorify the killer with the attention of having his name widely known. It's pretty amazing to be able to watch this happen in real time. The great thing about Twitter, despite all the downsides, is that you get to see how the lies are manufactured. Kamala Harris's niece, someone called Mina Harris, also weighed in on the race of the gunman. White men, she wrote, are the greatest terrorist threat to our country. Then police announced it was actually a guy called Ahmed, so Mina Harris had to correct herself. But she kept up the racial attacks because that's what she does. Mina Harris had assumed that Elisa was white, she wrote, quote, based on his being taken into custody alive and the fact that the majority of mass shootings in the U.S. are carried out by white men. So Ahmed Elisa, if you're following along, wasn't white, but white men are still bad. Got it? You may not even have noticed because you hear things like this every single day. You hear them constantly. And if you step back, you've got to wonder how long the rich and the powerful people like Amy Siskind and Mina Harris and countless others can continue this, can keep attacking a single racial group before our country breaks apart. We may find out in the end because no one seems to be stopping them. No one even mentions it. But to those who are interested in the tragedy of yesterday, the question remains, who was this Ahmed Aliwi Alisa? And here's what we know right now. Apparently, he's an immigrant from Syria who came here as a child. He's now a naturalized American citizen. He's political, but likely not a QAnon sympathizer. He's not a right-winger. In fact, his social media posts seem to track pretty consistently with CNN's primetime editorial views. A former classmate told the Denver Post that Elisa saw himself as an oppressed victim of racism. In high school, he would, quote, talk about being Muslim and how if anyone tried anything, he would file a hate crime. Three years ago, he was charged with violently assaulting a classmate. According to one report this afternoon, Elisa's name was, quote, previously known to the FBI, based on an ongoing investigation into one of his associates. And then the AP reported that Elisa may have been delusional. Well, of course he was delusional. He apparently shot 10 people. 
As of right now, that's pretty much all we know. There aren't that many facts. But that did not prevent the usual tragedy buzzards from circling the crime scene and speculating in the most destructive possible ways about what might have happened. Here, for example, is yet another retired left-wing federal agent yapping away on MSNBC about how actually this was an act of racism modeled on the massage parlor shootings last week in Atlanta. Is this just a guy copycatting the hate crime, the vicious hate crime in Atlanta? And it is a hate crime, by the way, and we should be all saying it publicly whether or not the prosecutors, you know, charge it. So that was former ATF special agent in charge, Jim Kavanaugh, ladies and gentlemen. Agent Kavanaugh has literally no idea what he's talking about. No clue whatsoever. He's making all of it up. But MSNBC put him on television anyway. Now, we work in TV, so we can confirm that that is shockingly reckless behavior. The other channels don't care, though. They do it all the time. Congresswoman Ilhan Omar of Minneapolis specializes in shocking recklessness. It's what she does. After the mass killings in Atlanta last week, none of which seemed to have anything whatsoever to do with the race of anyone involved, Omar tried her best to make Americans hate each other even more. That's how she's repaying the country that rescued her from a refugee camp in Africa. Law enforcement, Omar said, with zero evidence of any kind, works to protect, quote, the humanity of white mass murderers. What does that even mean? We have no idea, though obviously it is bristling with racial hostility, so MSNBC just rolled with it. Scapegoating is the evil cousin of white supremacy, and together they reinforce the notion that white is always in the right. The indifference to lives not white must stop. The disregard for the fear of white terror must stop. We must not be cowed by the terror unleashed by white men drowning in the deep end of racism, xenophobia, and misogyny. Yeah, that's good for the country. White supremacy! That's the culprit, no matter what the color the criminal was. It doesn't matter the criminal's color because it's systemic racism. And like carbon monoxide, it's an invisible poison. That is suddenly a very common view on the left. It's certainly Barack Obama's position. More than any other contemporary American leader, Barack Obama is a racial arsonist. He emerges at our most vulnerable moments to deepen the wounds that divide us. He sows hate. Why does Barack Obama do this? Well, it would take a psychiatrist to answer that question fully, though it seems obvious that deep loathing of some kind plays a role. It must play a role. Today, Obama took a break from becoming one of the richest men in the world to issue a statement blaming racism and misogyny for today's killings. So a guy who appears to be white shoots a group of white people and Barack Obama calls it racism. How exactly does that work? Can you speak slowly and tell us? Well, the former president didn't. He didn't indicate, but he didn't need to. Barack Obama had managed to divide Americans a little more than they were yesterday. And so from his perspective, mission accomplished. Fact. He was a Syrian refugee brought in over the Obama administration. Fact. He hated white people and he singled out white people. Fact. He was a liberal and social media has now purged his sites. But people got there first. And it was anti-Trump, anti-white people, anti-conservative, anti-red state, anti-Christian. He was anti-America. But that's the type of people that Barack Obama wants in the country. That's the type of people Biden want in the country. They don't want Americans. They want people who hate America and they want to make America something totally different. And this one was key. Mina Harris. I deleted a previous tweet. You heard about it. She goes back and changes it. Ilian Omar. 
Open up. The shooter racer ethnicity seems front and center when they aren't white. Otherwise, just a mentally ill young man having a bad day. Narratives driver responses to awful crimes committed against innocent people. Pay attention to these responses and who is targeted. Shut the fuck up. Meanie Harris explains it. Well, they usually get shot and die. So, yeah. Yeah, you're just a racist. Waji Ali. Islamic is trending. Don't even have to click on it. Let me guess. Right-wing outrage and racism over the identity of the boulder shooter. Meanwhile, crickets on gun reform and white supremacist terrorism, the number one domestic threat in America, somehow Trump will be seen as tough. The shooters, regardless of their ethnicity and religion, are able to commit mass murder due to access to assault rifles. GOP should enact gun reform if they really care about security. Go after all violent extremists, right? Don't befriend, elevate, and promote the ones you like. Media guide for shooting. Step one. This is Tim Young. Don't wait for the facts in the case. Step two. If the shooter looks white, blame white supremacy. Step three. If shooter is not white, blame guns. That's just what they do. The most amazing thing is... He was known by the FBI, and the Nick system didn't stop him from getting a gun. But you need comprehensive background checks, which we already have. Because what you're talking about is background checks for gun shows and private sales. Media doesn't break that down. Nick's didn't stop him buying a gun. It didn't stop him from buying a gun. And because it's bolder... There was no CCW people there that could have stopped him. But why would we talk about facts? Why? Lefties like journo and activists against Islamophobia. C.J. Werman might want to rethink the white domestic terrorist takes after Boulder Shooter's idea. Florence, okay, here's your headline. White terror shoots people in Boulder. Joe, John Jackson. Here's another white supremacist terrorist through hell to earth. White supremacists is a serious problem throughout the globe. Boulder. Aurora, 12 dead. Charleston, 9 dead. Atlanta, 8 dead. Boulder, 10 dead. Tay Anderson. The shooter in Boulder is most likely some white supremacist, neo-Nazi. Hell, most non-gang-related mass shooters are right-wing extremists. Extremely tired of people's lives, depending on whether a white man with an AR can have a good day or not. It's always an angry white man. Uh, the Boulder shooter is a white man, so get ready to hear people use the same mental health bad day and addiction argument to negate the fact that he white supremacist terrorist that killed seven people because that's America for you. Guns matter more than lives. I don't know what color this maniac of Boulder went out and shooting spree is or of his motivation. Don't know anything about the people killed or fallen officer, but I'm pretty damn sure it's a white supremacist that Trump told to kill people. The suspected gunman in Boulder, Colorado mass shooting is a white guy. Seven report reported dead. Q, mental issues, bad day, parking dispute, or anything else that most likely a white domestic terrorism. And then it all comes out. And what do they do? They don't remove anything. Caleb Hull. Massive thread. Here are all the idiot leftists who immediately jump to politicize a tragic boulder shooting to push their narrative. Only for it all to fall apart when it turns out a shooter is Muslim. Deadspin editor. Deadspin editor, USA editor. Activist feminist officer, Amy, uh, author Amy Siskin. Uh, George Hahn. When a white guy with an AR shootings killed a bunch of people, the motive really relevant? Spoiler alert, on the motive, he was having feelings. 
two different Americas. Dylan Park, a white man, walked into a grocery store in Boulder, killed 10 people and was apprehended by the police and walked out of the building completely unarmed, unharmed. Right down the road, police killed Elijah McClain when he apologized for not doing anything wrong. Two different Americas. Yeah, yeah, that was it. Global correspondent for Byline Times. He was white. Don Winslow. Description. Police have taken him in custody. Translation. He was white. Comedian D.L. Hoogley. A white arm mass murderer has a better chance of surviving in care of the police than a black dude. Uh... Mo- Rosanna Arquette, call it what it is, white supremacist domestic terror. Camelia Beckett, I was so relaxed just to be worried about the, being killed by an invisible virus instead of literally any slightly inconvenienced white man with the gun. People will continue to die just so that white men can own guns. The narrative really isn't going to age well. Francis Maxwell, today a white man walked in a grocery store in Boulder and killed 10 people. He was apprehended by police and taken unarmed. Meanwhile, not from this very store, police killed Elijah McCain. Oh, we're all talking about that. Mina Harris, John Pavlovitz, uh, Jared Yates Sexton, the gay guy that we used to bash at the beginning of the show. We can change the culture of entitlement that inspires white men to go on shooting sprees. We can rid of weapons and make mass shootings more possible. We can do these things, but the right relies on them for fundraising and political power. The NRA is almost bankrupt. What are you fucking talking about? Do we do we need facts at all in our world? Pointing out how white suspects get out without being stopped, frisking, or beaten. Michael Harriet, uh, Titus, the comedian. The suspect is being treated white guy. Suspected deceased black guy. Kwasim Rashid Esquire. Tamir Rice was 12. Oh, yeah, this has all, everything to do with it. Uh, or the Tay Anderson. Another one by that guy. Mina Harris again. Heard a shooter had been apprehended. He's white. Jesus fucking Christ. The handle knew the boulder shooter was white. 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 AP. A man taken out of the store in handcuffs by police. I guess the rate of the shooter was white. 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 He targeted white people. That's what he targeted. He targeted white people. Because we live in a world where we can do this. You can't say black person, Indian person, Martian person. You can't say those things on social media, in our press, in our public square. But you can say white guy evil, white guy terrorist, call people Nazis. The media doesn't want to cover this the way they want to cover it. Ten people lost their goddamn lives. They were all white. Regardless of their race or his race, this is a fucking tragedy. The system didn't work. He shouldn't have been able to buy a fucking gun if the FBI is monitoring him. What does the FBI do that is right? What? Does anybody know anything they do white right? Jamel Hill. 253 bills across 43 states have been introduced for strict voting access. Despite little evidence of voter fraud, we had seven mass shootings the last week 
Seven mass shootings in the last week. Okay. And only offer other thoughts and prayers in America. Black and brown, blah, blah, blah. Racist anti-white Twitter is more upset the murderer wasn't white than ten people who were killed. That's Kerry, guy I follow. Islamic terrorism, terrorism is back. Border crisis is back. Killing babies is back. Taxes are going up. Gas prices are going up. Biden's falling downstairs. And now this. North Korea fired a short-range missile. Media didn't even cover it. Jack Probasek accused Boulder shooter Ahmad Al-Asani believed racist Islamophobes were hacking his cell phone and he subscribed to the Washington Post. That would be a thing of the opposite. That would be a thing. Derek Hunter responding to Tay Anderson when he changed it and still said it was horrible when he still guns. Yesterday, I assumed what happened to Colorado would be useful to me. Today, I learned it's not. That's what they all did. NBC. 114 mass shootings in 20 years, but once claimed 307 in 2018 alone. Nothing they say is true. Nothing they put out on this issue is true. Nothing. But with out fail they instantly went non-white person it's time to motherfucking go gun grab president biden said he was devastated by the attack another american city he said now scarred by gun violence this is not it should not be a partisan issue this is an american issue it will save lives american lives and we have to act. Kristen Welker is at the White House. Kristen, what's the president calling for? Lester, President Biden called on the Senate to pass two bills already approved by the House that would expand background checks, and he urged Congress to reenact the assault weapons ban. It's uphill for any new gun legislation, with the Senate divided. Most Republicans and at least one Democrat argue the focus should be on enforcing the laws already in place instead of imposing new ones. As a candidate, Mr. Biden vowed to introduce new gun legislation on his first day, but has yet to do so. All right, Kristen Welker, thank you. As a nation, we have been here so many times before, more than 100 times over the last 20 years. After a deadly pandemic year, the country is again facing an enemy within, gun violence and mass murder. Here's Tom Costello. Yet again tonight, familiar heartbreak and a gut-wrenching irony that the victims in Boulder managed to survive a global pandemic only to die in America's decades-long epidemic of gun violence. Only a week ago, it was Atlanta. Before that, there was Milwaukee and El Paso, Dayton, Virginia Beach, Thousand Oaks, Pittsburgh, Santa Fe, Parkland, Las Vegas, Orlando, Newtown, Aurora, Charleston, Virginia Tech. The list of places and names goes on and on. Since the Columbine massacre in 1999, there have been at least 114 mass shootings, 1,300 victims. Today, former President Obama wrote, we should be able to live our lives without wondering if the next trip outside our home could be our last. We should, but in America, we can't. While hate and mental problems occur in every country, America is unique with more guns than there are people. The effort has always been through American history to 
protect everyone's rights under the Constitution, but at the same time, we all have the right to public safety. The country has suffered through so many mass murders, many Americans now feel a personal connection to one or even more. The same hometown, the same school, the same grocery store, the same bar or concert. Just as the country begins to emerge from the COVID darkness, the question many are asking tonight, is America's new normal just the old normal once again? You know, for most states, the age required to legally purchase a rifle and the age required to cast a ballot are both 18. However, there's some shocking disparities in uh, legal state requirements for obtaining a weapon versus casting a ballot. In 25 states, voters must be registered and have specific forms of ID in order to cast a ballot. But those same states allow people to buy rifles without permits and require no background checks for some sales. Additionally, in a majority of states, new voters are able to obtain a rifle quicker than they're able to cast their first ballot. It seems to me that we have our priorities entirely backwards when it comes to this, when we make it easier to buy a gun than we do to cast a ballot. Uh, Effort that we move forward without them. Let's end the filibuster. Fred, you know, I think a lot of people are looking at some legal realities that unfolded in Colorado over the course of the last week. I know you're well aware of this, but six days ago, an ordinance that had been passed banning assault-style weapons in the state was basically overturned through a lawsuit. Uh, tell me more about that and what that tells you about the fight ahead for gun safety reform. You know, listen... States and cities across this country since Parkland have done amazing work to pass gun safety measures to protect the people in our communities across this country. And every time that's happened, the NRA has been there filing lawsuits to make us less safe. They are a terror organization that is making us less safe. They can get back to their lives and now they're gone. You know, Stephanie, I'm, as I'm hearing you report this, I just wonder... Can you count how many times you've covered a story like this? Have you lost count? I don't. I don't know anymore. Um, and it makes me sad. It makes me sad to even sit here and think about that, yeah. Brianna, that there's been so many times that we have had to go out and cover these stories and talk to people who are devastated. Their lives will never be the same because of this. And they're still in shock and you think about them. And sometimes they happen close to where you've grown up. So you can think about it in that way. And other yeah. times it happens far away, but it's still the same. The root of it, the pain of it is still raw and it's real. And I can feel it every single time. And I think about these people often and, and my, you know, my heart bleeds for them too, that they're having to deal with this today because I'm sure they can't even take it all in at this point. Yeah. It's you lose count. You don't forget it. But somehow it just, it's so much, you know, it's Stephanie, thank you so much. Stephanie Elam live for us from Los Angeles and make sure that we really get to talk to you about what happens next, because you tweeted last night, enough is enough. What can, what should Congress do now? It seems like we have heard this song, played this record many times before and nothing changes. I think the time for inaction is over. It does not have to be this way. There are common sense gun reform legislation proposals that have been 
debated in the Congress for far too long. Congressman, we, we don't yet know the details of this particular case, but the bigger picture conversation about legislation doesn't depend on any particular case. It depends on the politics of it. I, I remember uh, the Newtown massacre and the feeling like, if not now, when? And yet those efforts largely came to naught, at least federally. What can you do now to make a difference this time around? Aren't you frustrated by this, Congressman? I look at countries around the world that look at us and say, what is wrong with you, United States of America? I wake up this morning, I keep thinking about those 10 families who woke up and the families in Atlanta last week whose lives are forever changed. And we keep pointing fingers at everybody else and nothing gets done here. Yeah, no, I, I share your frustration. We know this story all too well. We have seen it on our televisions far too many times. We've mourned the lives lost, feeling outrage over the lack of action, while knowing that in some parts of the country, it's easier to buy a gun than it is to vote. And now Congress looks and feels very different, boasting gun-obsessed conservatives who display their weapons as their Zoom backgrounds and campaign as Second Amendment warriors. This is what we're up against. Colorado's a gunny state. It didn't seem like a, you know, wackily gunny state when I was growing up, but it is. It's, it's sort of been an Alex Jonesification, right, of the Republican Party, um, Senator. I mean, you've got Lauren Boebert, who uses, like, a bunch of big old guns as her Zoom background. And she tweeted out today, oh, thoughts and prayers for the on the shooting, and got this used by Jamel Hill because it's like, you, you did do that background. Is, is somebody like her in politics in Colorado hurting the effort? You know, the NRA tried to tweet out today thinking they were dropping the mic, tweeting out the, the text of the Second Amendment. The text of the Second Amendment includes the words well-regulated, and it talks about militias. It, it is irrelevant to gun reform um, f from what, you know, is being talked about in places like con in, in Congress, in the United States Senate and in the House. Would you like to see the United States Senate get rid of the filibuster in order to pass what, like, 70 percent of even Republicans want universal background checks? Do you think that the Senate should just dead the filibuster so that they can actually pass. We'll have a rare inside look at an all-black armed militia, and its stated goal is to defend black people by any means necessary. That last one was them touting a leftist militant. And I put it in there because why do you fucking think we own guns? Why did I get a concealed carry? Because for a fucking year, you said it was okay for roving bands of skinny jean-wearing chai latte fucking anarchists to burn cities down and BLM activists to go and fuck with people, trash their houses, and beat the shit out of them. On top of four years, if you wear a red hat, beat that motherfucker down. That's our media. Gun ownership exponentially went up even in minority groups because of the violence. Because you simultaneously defunded police department and crime is at an all-time high. Murders, all-time high. Armed robberies, all-time high. Assaults, all-time high. Everything's all-time high. When you're taking the justice system and you're doing cashless frickin' bail, regardless of the crime because of your skin color, what the fuck do you think people are going to do? What people fail to realize, it's white liberals pushing narratives, not black folk. Black folk are just as, they're just as conservative as me. 
But when they go in the poll, they're so inundated with, if you vote for that guy, you're going to be back in chains. Our president said that. But right off the bat, you saw Biden. Yeah, I don't have any information, but we need still guns. Uh, Unrelenting epidemic of gun violence in the U.S. Schumer. Uh, Warren. Week after week, month after month, year after year, the gun violence doesn't end and things won't get better until Democrats get rid of the filibuster and pass gun safety legislation, a.k.a. confiscation. NBC political analyst. Ten people were murdered yesterday in a mass shooting. Eight people killed in the land last week. Senate Judiciary has a gun hearing today. Hearing was scheduled before the shooting. That's the point Dems are making. Mass shootings happen without warning or reason. Punchable news this AM. Democrats will find themselves asking what good is it to have majorities of both chambers in the White House and not to pass priority gun legislation. For context, it's worth noting the last time gun control legislation had a serious chance of getting through, Congress was following Sandy Hook. Former President Barack Obama tapped Biden and the VP to lead the effort with the ultimately failed as a bipartisan background check bill stole the Senate floor. Biden and Obama were wrapped by many for their inability to cut a deal and use the widespread national attention to force Congress to act. We should see that play out again here. One other note, activists have pointed out that in Georgia, for instance, it's easier to buy a gun than to register to vote. This says a lot about where America is headed in 2020. One. Are those activists correct? Have you verified that claim? That's a fucking lie. That's a lie. And by the way, if you're going to make these dinky doink fucking I am an activist statements, well, you need an ID to buy a gun. You don't need an ID to vote, you guys say. That's not important. The system failed. He shouldn't have been able to buy a gun. If you're upset about things, talk to the fucking FBI. How did he get a gun if he's on a watch list? I'm just making the legal question. The reality is you're never going to get back all the ARs. Even if you make them outlawed, Nobody's turning them in. There's over 3 million, I don't even know what it is, last number. I think it's 10 million of the motherfuckers in this country alone. You'll never get them back. And criminals don't follow the law to begin with. And you don't enforce the laws that are there, Democrats. This And almost every shooting happens in blue states with strict gun laws. What does that say? You can't blame Indiana for this one like you try to do Chicago. People are evil. There's nothing we can do to stop it. You could take the gun away, they'll use a knife. Take the knife away, they'll use a rock. Take the rock away, they'll use a fucking stick. Take the stick away, they'll use their fucking hands. But this isn't about gun violence. This isn't about those poor 10 people who went to King's Super to get groceries. This is about you and your political party. And what you want to do is get rid of the filibuster so you can do all the crazy shit that has nothing to do with safety. And just own the government forever. It has nothing to do with guns. Lefty lame zinger. When the Second Amendment was written, it took 30-plus seconds to load a single bullet. Shut the fuck up. 
And of course, we're not going to cover a combat vet who went to the Capitol speech, didn't do anything wrong. The FBI raided his house. His wife had a miscarriage the next day. We're not going to talk about that. We're not going to talk about California bill. Proposes removing cops who express religious or conservative beliefs. Real thing. The bill known as the California Law Enforcement Accountability Reform Act claims to combat the infiltration of extremism in our law enforcement agency and would mandate a background check for all officers to exchange racist or homophobic messages. And if you say anything religious, you're a homophobe. But it's just not California, it's the DEA. Thanks. So it's hard to believe this happened, but it did, and this is not the only case of it. A DEA special agent was fired from his job for supporting the wrong presidential candidate. Is that legal? We didn't think it was. It happened. We'll ask him straight ahead. So you may not know this, but there were thousands of Republicans, kind of garden variety Republicans, who went to hear Donald Trump speak near the White House on January 6th. Most of them didn't do anything wrong at all. They just sat and listened. Our next guest is one of them. He is or was a DEA special agent. He was suspended from his job after he went to that political rally, and he was later fired for, quote, performance issues. He says he never entered the Capitol. He says he even defended police officers who were being heckled that day. It's crazy how quick they turn on cops. It's not right. Everyone's just trying to do their job, man. Amazingly, Mark Ibrahim is the man you just heard in that video when he joins us now. Mark, thanks so much for coming on. Did, did I leave anything out of that introduction? It's just hard to believe you could be fired for going to a political rally. Did you do anything criminal that day? No, not at all, Tucker. I never even stepped foot on the, the stairs of the Capitol building. Truth be told, I wasn't even going to go to the, the rally that day. A friend I served in Iraq with asked me to help him get there for documentation purposes, and uh, we were just spectators. And then when uh, the crowd began to be hostile towards law enforcement, me being law enforcement myself, I started to document everything. And um, via my friend, we handed everything over to the FBI so those criminals could face justice. Got on a flight back to LA. I had my badge and gun taken away from me. I was escorted off the premises to my, my apartment like a criminal. And uh, I was fired after being suspended for two months um, for performance issues. So this kind of ideological purge is taking place throughout the federal government. The completely out of control Secretary of Defense is purging the armed forces, as I know you're aware, right now. But I have to ask, is this legal? Don't we have civil service laws that protect career federal employees for being fired for their political beliefs? I thought we did. <laughs> I hope we do, too. I mean, I was there with my brother. Uh, he's an FBI special agent. And uh, no adverse action was taken against him, as it shouldn't, as it shouldn't have happened to me. And, um, you know, they got it wrong. I, uh, me and my brother both served in the Army. I followed him into federal law enforcement. My sister is a, a Navy veteran. My mom was in the Pentagon on 
And uh, I'm the son of two immigrants who left oppressive regimes. And, um, you know, my mom instilled in me a debt that we owe to this country for the liberties and freedoms. They're, they're not free. And so just the saddest part about this is I can't serve my country anymore. Well, speaking but, um, of oppressive regimes, so can you get your job back? I mean, it, it doesn't seem like in a free country you should have to stand for this. Is there any way to get your job back? I am taking legal action against the DEA through the help of Dre Law Firms. They've been very supportive and uh, taking this as a matter of principle. Um, you know, I really was, I've been taking orders since I was 18 and uh, I was yeah. really was just going to accept this. And my friends encouraged me to fight. They said, not just on your behalf, but everybody who's being uh, wrongfully persecuted for their political views. And I would encourage anybody, if, if you've had taken, if any adverse action was taken against you, because of your political views that you should fight. Um, you know, my friends set up a, uh, a give, send, go to help me, uh, under, uh, to help me pay for my legal fees and living expenses. And um, yeah, it's just, it's just sad. I, I, you know, better men have suffered worse for the preservation of our union. Um, I just didn't see it coming from my own countries, let alone my own agency. I, I, Really quick, I, I have to ask you, I can't resist. Remember when they called the last guy a fascist? Does that make you laugh thinking about it now? It does, yeah. I mean... Yeah, me too. It's... It, you know, it's just, it's just... I tried... I wanted to aid law enforcement that day as best I could. Um, and seeing that the WFO SWAT team was there and uh, better suited to handle the situation than me, who is outside of his jurisdiction... Uh, I decided documenting would be the way to go. I really didn't think anything of it. And um, yeah. yeah, and now I'm actually the subject of a criminal investigation. You can't stand for this, and I'm glad you're not standing for it. I don't think any of us should. Mark, thanks Thank so you. much for coming on tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. I would just like to say, uh, I mean, I pray that our country heals. I pray that we stop marginalizing yeah, and dehumanizing one another. Uh, that's all Gina Carano was saying. And um, I'd just like to give a very special thank you to the WFO SWAT team, who is the common courage we needed that day. Yeah, so this is really about safety and protecting people, and not a gigantic cult, fascist regime pushing down, you can't have opposing views. No, it's not about that. Not at all. Anthony V. Kark. What's a valid reason to own an AR-15? What's a valid reason to put pronouns in your Twitter bio? What's a valid reason to exercise any right? Any reason. Also, no reason. Skirting the valid qualifiers as people can justify anything to themselves. A simple answer may be because they exist. If a facet of ownership is defense and newer technology loses defined as better arises, then it makes sense to stay up to date. Another one. They are excellent varmint weapons. Small, light, and cheap. The ammo is the right size. They're smaller animals. Says 50 pounds and lower. Practice. My nephew's Green Beret and he practices with his. They're fun to shoot. My body, my choice. Because I can. What's a valid reason to ask what I own? It's the best firearm for the community and home defense and responsible for less than 4% of U.S. gun deaths. When you can't find an AK because they're not aware of the Romanian AK. To protect yourself and family because you want one. Just wanting one. You shouldn't need a reason. Everything that is happening right now. COVID. How, home defense. How many homes have been defended using an AR-15? Home defense. Not having a reason is reason enough. Shall not be infringed. 
because people can. None of your business. I want one, and this is America. All lawful purposes. I don't ask you why you have your pronouns. I don't really fucking care. But the National Pulse nails it. All 10 Boulder, Colorado victims were white. It's time to end anti-white race hate. The victims, including grocery store workers, local college graduates, Medicare agent, a police officer, and an Orthodox Christian. Today, the National Pulse calls on the political left and their media counterparts to stop the racial hatred. They continue to perpetuate against white people, which doubtfully led to these murders in Colorado. Denny Strong. They list everyone. Ricky Olds. Tarana Bartowick. Susan Fountain. Terry Leaker. Eric Talley. Kevin Mahoney. Lynn Murray. Murray Jody Waters. Nevin Stasinic. Nobody's talking about that. Nobody wants to talk about it. For me, this hits home. My sister lives near this. Big sis in Colorado. Probably shopped there before. And this shows you why whenever this comes up and you go from lefties, it's the white guy to let's grab guns. It's not about facts. I can make the whole show about this and show all the stupid anti-gun shit that's all over our TV. You can make a million laws. If you're not going to enforce them, what good are they? How did he get a gun if he was an illegal immigrant brought over here by the Obama program from Syria with anti-American views, anti-white views, anti-Trump views, and a media that has spent four years saying everybody who voted for Trump's a fucking Nazi and must be exterminated. We need to put a bullet in him rhetoric that we played on the show. How'd he get the fucking gun? Why did Nix allow him to get a gun? Why did his family, who knew he was mentally ill, allow him to get a gun? Why does Obama release black people from prison for gun charges because it was racial equity? Why don't we have fucking cash bail in major cities with people with gun crimes? Why does nobody give a fuck Chicago has on average 20 people fucking killed a fucking week? And it has the strictest gun laws in the nation. That could have been my sister. And it's because the system's broke. You can do whatever you want to angle it towards white people in the South, or conservatives, or people who don't vote like you, Christians. We don't do mass shootings. My guns aren't going to walk out of the house and shoot kids. And no, Dennis in New York, I won't be a tower shooter. I have guns because it's a hobby. I like shooting. I have guns because I need to defend myself in a country that wants to be is being run right now by people who want to defund the police, 
take away everybody's guns, take everybody's right to speak, and ruin the economy with 2 million illegal immigrants this year alone. And then make the other 30 legal. So I never have a job again. Or people like me, because equity and shit. I own a gun because you allowed a bunch of goddamn anarchists to destroy this country for a summer during a pandemic and said it was racial justice. And then you financed them with 400 million fucking dollars from corporate entities and you shoved everybody's racist down my neck. I have a gun because you spent all your fucking time saying every white person is responsible for fucking slavery, even though nobody in my lineage was ever fucking here during that time, so I can't possibly own a fucking slave if I wasn't fucking here! I own a gun because you people are fascists. You spent four years calling some guy a fascist, and you're the fascist. Thoughts, religion, expression, ownership, what we eat, how we live. You want to regulate how I fuck. I mean, we're so regulated in this country that I went to my crack appointment on a Monday, but I couldn't get my medicine. Because there's so many rules on that. And I had to go back the next day to get the medicine at 6 a.m. I could have it at 4 a.m. the next day, but I couldn't have it at 10 a.m. the day of. Because there's so many regulations on Percocet. But these same people who made these regulations say it's okay to shoot motherfucking heroin, snort coke, and smoke crack. You don't need an ID card for that. Or voting. If you can't see through the bullshit, folks, you need to take your blinders off. I got a soapbox to end the show. A new segment. These people are liars. They're incredible liars. And as we segue to the border, nothing they say to you isn't politically motivated. Well, the images suggest those of concentration camps. The Statue of Liberty, I think, is right now. There's no denying this is an incredibly complex humanitarian issue that's, of course, made even more difficult by the fact that we're dealing with this in the midst of a pandemic. He will be forever remembered as the president who traumatized little children. A lot of these children are part of a problem that the Biden administration inherited from the Trump administration. The system is broken inside of the country. Increasingly, Donald Trump is turning this nation into Nazi Germany and turning these into concentration camps. I call this a concentration camp for kids. Obviously, this is a problem that the Biden administration inherited from the Trump administration. Babies in jail. Babies in baby cages. Challenges facing U.S. Border Patrol amid this migrant surge. Babies 
in jail. A very, very tough situation that the Biden administration now needs to contend with. Something that's very difficult for the federal government to deal with at the border. Children are being marched away to showers. I know they're being marched away to showers, just like the Nazis. You have a lot of border agents, you know the union was very pro-Trump, who are now starting to just leak out videos un anonymously, which can be very dangerous where we don't know where things are coming from. We begin this afternoon with the wails of children. Yeah, the Biden administration, they moved quickly to overturn many of Trump's hardline immigration policies. But critics say that they did that without having a plan in place on the ground out here to manage the surge of migrants that followed. Here on the southern border, they can easily lose their life here. Authorities say they've never seen anything like it. These are not places for kids. They are only supposed to be allowed in these facilities for up to three days. But guys, the Biden administration, they still, to this day, despite all of our requests, will not allow journalists inside to see what is going on inside those facilities. We were out late into the night talking to migrants who just crossed the border. We met little kids, nine and 10 years old, traveling by themselves. And because there are so many kids just like them crossing the border right now, they will likely end up in a facility like this one behind me. Severely overcrowded, jail-like places not meant for kids. Inside this tent facility on the southern border, so many children, they are sleeping on floors, side by side, huddled under foil blankets. The Biden administration refusing to allow journalists in to see for themselves, sources providing this first look. This video shot by Customs and Border Protection last week, obtained exclusively by ABC News. Only 250 people are supposed to be held here. Instead, there are close to 4,000. Some families, mostly unaccompanied minors traveling alone, from teenage boys to infants. Here, toddlers in a playpen being watched by a caretaker. The kids made the treacherous journey all the way from Central America, hoping to claim asylum. Inside, they get medical checks. They line up one by one for food. This video showing girls at a center in El Paso exercising outside. But this is no place for children, crammed into pods, one pod housing more than 400 boys. The White House says they're working as quickly as possible to move these kids into shelters and homes, calling in FEMA for help but under fire from critics who say they didn't do enough to plan for the surge after overturning many of Trump's hardline immigration policies, the administration still refuses to call the situation a crisis. Are you concerned that a market efficiency has been created where, uh, where folks have decided, look, um, my kid's got a shot at getting, getting in the United States if I don't go with them? Uh, Chuck, our, our message has been straightforward and simple, and it's true. The border is closed. We are expelling families. We are expelling single adults, and we've made a decision uh, that we will not expel young, vulnerable children. I think uh, we are executing on our plans, and quite frankly, uh, when we are finished doing so, uh, the American public will look back on this and say we secured our border and we upheld our values and our principles as a nation. How can you say the border is closed if there is this, what some would look at as a loophole? And I understand on humanitarian grounds, but if, if the goal is to get these asylum seekers to, to seek the asylum in home country, Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, um, for instance, uh, how do you get them to do that if our policy is to let them in at the border? 
So, Chuck, we have a short-term plan, a medium-term plan, and a long-term plan, and the president uh, and I have spoken to this uh, repeatedly. Uh, please remember uh, something, that uh, President Trump dismantled the orderly, humane, and efficient way of allowing children to make their claims under United States law in their home countries. He dismantled the Central American Miners Program. So we are rebuilding those orderly and safe processes as quickly as possible. But in the meantime, in the meantime, we will not expel into the Mexican desert, for example, three orphan children whom I saw over the last two weeks. We just won't do that. That's not who we are. This significant surge coming after President Biden ended Donald Trump's so-called remain in Mexico policy, requiring asylum seekers to wait there for their court proceedings. Since then, many of those tent cities along the Mexican border have emptied out as people start streaming in. We were there when a bus of 56 asylum seekers arrived at Casa Alitas, a Catholic charity shelter in Tucson. Men, pregnant women and children stepping off the bus with only what they could carry. This father, who asked that we not show his face, traveled to Mexico from Brazil with his wife and three young kids before crossing the border. Would you have tried to do this when Donald Trump was president? Definitely not. Definitely. We had the chance, you know, the, the same violence that is going on today was there last year. We used to watch the, the news and uh, I definitely won't do this. So did you come here because Joe Biden was elected president? Basically, basically. Uh, the main thing was the violence in my country. And the second thing I think was Joe Biden. This father, who asked that we not show his face, traveled to Mexico from Brazil with his wife and three young kids before crossing the border. Would you have tried to do this when Donald Trump was president? Definitely not. Definitely. We had the chance, you know, the, the same violence that is going on today was there last year. We used to watch the, the news and uh, I definitely won't do this. So did you come here because Joe Biden was elected president? Basically, basically. Uh, the main thing was the violence in my country. And the second thing, I think, was Joe Biden. I, you know, uh, it's like uh, letting up my hope. You know what I mean? We flew alongside the governor as he took an aerial tour of the border to see the situation for himself. He says Joe Biden is to blame. And what is it exactly? Is it the remain in Mexico? What, what's made the huge difference? Or is it, as your sheriff says, it's the messaging? Well, it's a combination of things. Of course, the, the migrant protection protocols was a good policy, and it was working. It disincentivized people from taking this dangerous trip. You heard President Biden say the other day, don't come. What more can he do? He, well, he certainly can communicate more often more clearly, and he should be talking to President Obrador. He's got a big microphone. He needs to use it appropriately. But the Biden administration has turned back the majority of those crossing into the U.S., many distraught after believing they would find refuge in America. Some say the new president gave them hope for a life in America. Why did you decide to come now? To take advantage of the opportunity that the president has given to the people from, from, from Central America to come with their families. 
and a good Sunday morning. It's fair to call the deteriorating situation at the U.S.-Mexican border a crisis, even if the Biden administration refuses to use that word. But it's more than that. It's a political crisis for the new president with no easy way out. Republicans are quick to blame Mr. Biden for the growing number of migrants crossing the southern border, saying it's his rhetoric and policy shifts that caused this surge in migrants. The new Democratic administration says it was left with a dismantled and unworkable immigration system by former President Trump. Look, conservatives want nothing less than a big wall and some stricter enforcement of the border. Progressives want nothing less than humane treatment for migrants fleeing violence, wherever it is, and a path to citizenship for those that are already here. So far, Americans largely approve of Mr. Biden's young presidency, and he wants to focus on vaccinations, COVID relief, infrastructure, voting rights, racial inequalities, and renewing America's image at home and abroad. But he can't control the news cycle. Just last week, an intelligence report reminded us of the threat from domestic terror groups that Mr. Biden must confront, particularly after January 6th. Events in politics have a way of applying their own pressure points. And right now, that pressure is pointed directly at our southern border. And that pretty much sums it up right there. They're not saying it. Come on, man. Corn pop. Yeah, that's ABC and NBC. They both got it. Watch illegal immigrants say the quiet part outside. Martha Raddus to illegal aliens across the border. Would you have tried to do this with Donald Trump? No. No. New exclusive photos leaked out by a Dem representative. And there they are. Not a crisis. Not kids in cages. Kids in bubble wrap. Yeah. Yeah, that's good shit right there. Look at that. Yeah. That's fucking fantastic shit right there. Somebody did this too. Because remember, that's the crying child. It was all bullshit. It was all a fucking lie. Yeah, it's all a fucking lie. None of it's fucking true. But those are what they're doing to these kids. And you see what the media is doing. None of it is true. In that bumper of bullshit, you had the shocked. You had fucking uh, uh, just an excerpt of what they did for Trump on the border. When it wasn't even remotely like this. Steph Knight. Exclusive photos inside CBB temporary overflow facility taken over the weekend in Donna, Texas, revealed the crowd and makeshift conditions. Axios printed it. Axios. 2,000 illegals crossing per month, fentanyl smuggled at record levels, Texas ranchers' homes burned, but Nancy Pelosi says the Biden men has this under control. Not playing her lies. Not doing it. Washington Post article argues there's no surge at the border accidentally shows there's a surge at the border. They do the whole article, and then they show a graph, and I was going to put it in here, but do you expect anything? They show it doing this. But it's not a surge. It's not levels. Bulwark, Bill Crystal. This is what he had to say. There is no crisis at the border. There's a recurring problem at the border, which is being addressed, and which can be considered ameliorated by a sensible and humane overhaul of our immigration policies and practices. Practices the Trump administration made worse. What did I say? If you're a never-Trumper, you are just a Democrat now. You can't stop it. It's exposure therapy. Over time, if I was just all the time around fucking lefties, I would start pronoun like a motherfucker. 
It's a tweener day. Colton Basebum not. Must maintain narrative. NBC News correspondent cites contributing factor for the border surge. On The View, Jacob Soboroff blames global warming. Arizona governor this morning, Biden DHS Secretary, Secretary Mayorkas, claimed the border is secure. Situation unfolded the border is a crisis, and D.C. is completely divorced from reality. I spoke to Martha Raddus this week on ABC about the surge of illegal immigration and humanitarian crisis. It was in there. It's the worst he's ever seen. Mayorkas on MTP. I played it. No pushback. None. If a Trump official would have said that during this, Jesus fucking Christ. Media Matters. Senior fellow appalled by the coverage. Matt Gerst, agenda setting all three broadcast morning shows referring to the situation at the border as a crisis. It seems coordinated. The border has been problematic for years. However, this is a cynical attempt by the networks to manufacture crisis increase ratings. After Trump, I somehow managed to believe for a minute that the MSNBC was good. Keith Oberman, gotta remember that while these shows periodically contain some new content, they are not now and have not for 30 years been serious about news except as content. The audience doesn't necessarily see the distinction, but it's there. Because, yeah, our media is conservative. How fucking batshit crazy do you have to be? CNN leads the way with... President Biden vows to ease border surge as Republicans sense a political opening. No! No, they don't. They're not like you. They don't see boulders, den people, 10 people dead as a way to repeal people's gun rights. They, like most Americans, look at the border and go, why are you letting 2 million people in this country? We got homeless people here. Why why are you giving 86 million for fucking hotels? We got homeless people here. Why are you giving all these people free shit? We got people here ain't got goddamn medical care free college. They're not going to get stimulus checks. Illegal immigrants to receive 4.38 billion in stimulus checks. Really. They're not even citizens. And even though I'm long, I'm going to play this 14-minute song. I'm going to downsize it some. But Dan Crenshaw spoke, spoke to that motherfucking racist Medea Hassan about the border since coming to office. Let me just put some numbers up on screen. You can see clearly uh, from those CBP numbers that since the pandemic and since Title 42 was brought in to expel asylum seekers at the start of the pandemic, border apprehensions have gone up month after month. The truth is Joe Biden did not inherit falling numbers. He inherited nine consecutive months of increases at the border. It's right there on screen for single adults and for families and kids. Yeah, I'm not sure where you're getting your data from. Look, in February, we had over 100,000 um, crossings. Uh, back in November, there was about 800 people in CBP custody. Now there's about 10,000. Uh, migrants will tell you, as reporters are interviewing them, that the, the Joe Biden invited them. The drug cartels are, are passing this information along. Look, there was there was very specific policies that were reversed as soon as Biden took office. As, I, as, as you mentioned that I said in, my, in our Twitter exchange, 
Remain in Mexico policy and, and, and really importantly, the asylum cooperative agreements with Northern Triangle countries. Um, this basically reinstates a process of catch and release. When people think that they're going to come across the border as long as they have a child with them and they're going to be released, then that's a huge incentive to come across, especially when they're going to get a bus ticket wherever they want and now a hotel room because that's what's being funded. So it, the, the incentives are pretty obvious, and we have to ask ourselves the question, is this a sustainable policy? And is this fair to millions and yeah. millions of people around the world who have valid asylum claims that now are getting clogged into the system and can't get their claims heard? A lot of claims made there, which we'll try to unpack in the brief time we have together. I just want to stick to one. You said, I don't know where you're getting the numbers from. Let's just pull up the graph again. That is a graph from the American Immigration Council based on CBP figures. Those are CBP numbers. If we pull up the graph, I just want you to have a look at uh, that graph we just had. That's nine straight months. You can see there, Title 42. I can't, I can't, I can't see the graph, line. but I can tell you, but I can well, tell you, I just got the it's phone. Well, let me tell you, it's nine straight months. Hold on, hold on, hold on, Congressman. Nine straight months of increases in immigrants being apprehended so, okay, at the border. So Joe Biden so did not inherit up, just to be clear, nine months of fault. Just to be clear, you're just denying that this, that this massive increase happened in the last couple of months? We're just, we're just denying that? No, I didn't, disra- I didn't deny there was a massive increase. I can agree there's a massive increase. Can you agree there were nine months of increases prior to Biden coming into office? That's what the CBP figures are showing. These are not substantial increases. Look, I just got off the phone with one of the former uh, CBP chiefs. There's about 1,000 okay, people you're, you're released the in, into the U.S. Okay. But there were it's nine months of increase. That's all I want us to agree on. We, we agree. Okay. okay we agree okay. there's a crisis now, right? I mean, we have that premise in common, right? There's a crisis now that well, needs to be reversed. Can well, we agree well, on that premise? I'll, I'll come back to the. I'll come back to the crisis word in a moment. I just want to check something else you said. You made these claims on Fox News last week. Have a listen. This happened overnight, okay, when when President Biden rescinded the Remain in Mexico policy, when they rescinded the asylum cooperation agreements with the Northern Triangle countries, when they said, hey, we're not going to deport you when you come. So so, so Biden has the nerve to say quietly, hey, don't come, wink, don't come, don't come here, don't come here. If you come here, we're going to give you a bus ticket wherever you want, and we're not going to deport you. I'll come back to your Remain in Mexico and Asylum Cooperation Agreement points in a moment. But the rest of that, Congressman, is just not true. How can you say the Biden administration isn't deporting people? Last month, nearly three out of four people encountered at the border were expelled straight away under Title 42. 72% of people encountered at the border last month, apprehended, were instantly expelled. So how is what you said on Fox true? It isn't. Look, over the course of 2020, 1,000 people came illegally into the U.S. and then were released in the interior of the U.S. And in just the year 2021, it's 20,000. Right, this comes straight out of Border Patrol. It was just down there a couple of weeks ago. So again, there, there are very specific instances of policy reversals that have caused, caused a massive spike in illegal immigration and people incentivized to come across our border. I, I'm not sure why we're debating that point. I think we should debate what to do about it. I'm wondering why you're I'm wondering why you went on Fox and say people are not being deported when 72 percent of the people apprehended the border last month were deported under Joe Biden. Can you deal with that point? You just played what I said. I never said nobody was getting deported. And and so look, people, our system works fairly well. You just played what I said, and I know I didn't say that. You said, hold on, hold on. I I mean, you said, said, hold on, hold on. You said, you can't, hold on, hold on. You said, Biden has the nerve to say, don't come, wink, don't come here, don't come here. If you're coming here, we're going to give you a bus ticket wherever you want. We're not going to deport you. 72% of people were deported. 
So thank you for proving me right and saying I didn't say he's not deporting anybody. So what happens is, this is complicated, so let's unpack this. For single adults crossing the border, our system is still intact. It still works okay. Single adults illegally crossing the border generally do get report, or deported. Family units are much more difficult to deal with. This has been the case ever since 2014. A court case called the Flores Settlement basically caused an incentive to yes. come across the board. This is why Obama dealt with it. This is why Trump has dealt, dealt with it. And this is why Biden dealt with it. So when you tell people, if you bring a child with you, you're going to be released into the interior, well, then they're going to have a bigger incentive to come. Now, under the Trump administration, they said, okay, we're going to tell you to remain in Mexico and adjudicate your claim there. Or even better, you can, you can go to your home country or a neighboring country and adjudicate your asylum claim there. So you don't have to go through these smuggling routes, which are unsafe. And you're yeah. basically running into the open arms okay. of the drug cartels. You know, I, I do, funding I promise, drug cartels. I promise we will come back to remain in Mexico. I've got a question I want to get into with you, but I just need to do with this first. You accept that 72% of people apprehended at the border are expelled. Can we agree on that under CBP statistics? You agree with that? That, that, that sounds right. Sounds right. But it doesn't, it also, okay. but there's also so then, 20,000 so at so least so failure that's released. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Uh, hold on. So then it's a lie to say there's an open border, as Republicans, Kevin McCarthy, your leader, and others keep saying there's an open border. That's false. If 72% of people are being deported, how is that an open border? That's just a lie. Well, the vast majority of people are in these family units that do not get deported. There's also at least a thousand a day. Just got off the phone with border patrol. Just got off the phone with border patrol. Now listen to what I'm about to say. A thousand, a thousand a day runaway. The people who get away. Because, because here's the thing, you have to understand this too. When Border Patrol is dealing with hundreds and hundreds of family units at a time, because the drug cartels say, hey, you pay $300 a person and you walk across there and you turn yourself into Border Patrol, they're just going to let you go. And that's exactly what happens. But here's what happens. Border Patrol becomes babysitters, they become bus drivers, they become nurses. You know what they're not doing? Patrolling the border. I, 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 drug cartels I, 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 I get love this. They can go around, they get people. Babysitters. I'm just going to... I'm just going to talking understand points. These are facts. You should go down that. there. You need to go down there and see this for yourself. I, I don't think These are facts. I mean, a CBP officer is not a babysitter. But let me just ask you this. I just need to finish. This being told it to cannot be. be an open border. It cannot be an open border if 72 percent of people are removed. That's just nonsensical to claim that. You know that. I know that. Your party leader in the yeah, house. But, I, but, but, but again, you're, you're, you're arguing with people. Phrase, open if, border. If you want to accuse okay. somebody else of, of, of a lie, I would say there's an effective open border. That's what I would say. Look, if you want to keep okay. somebody else of saying things, but you, you haven't been able though, to fact check me on this of, I didn't say it. Even though three quarters of migrants, even though three quarters of, well, I'm fact checking you now, it's not an effective open border if the vast majority of people get expelled and adults are not welcome and the Biden you should, you should, you should go down there and see for yourself. When, when hundreds of people a night, okay. when hundreds of people, okay. this is at a single place, at a single crossing point that I was down in Stark County in Texas. The single crossing point when hundreds of people a night well, let's talk come about, across and they, okay, and they get released into the interior, that's an effective open border. Yes. So let's talk about the children, because it's only the children who are being allowed and not being turned away under Title 42. That is what Biden did. He changed the position. Trump was expelling unaccompanied children under Title 42, the pandemic ruling. And Biden is saying mm -hmm. children can stay. That's why they're a record number of children in detention. I think that's a good thing. You don't. You would rather expel unaccompanied children. You would tell the four-year-old boy from Honduras who was found in a river last month, you would send him back to Honduras on his own, a four-year-old. That's what you would do. We would never send him back on his own. So, so the so the administration's been really maliciously lying about the actual process of Title Forty Two. They would have you believe, and I think Mallorca said this. You know, we're not going to put orphans back in the desert. Well, nobody should put orphans back in the desert. That's that's a good policy. Don't do that. Exactly. Um, what but what they actually. 
Well, okay, you just told a lie. That's not exactly what they were doing. And again, you need to research this. You need to go to the border. You need to talk to Border Patrol and see what the actual process was. Okay. Here's what actually happened. When unaccompanied, listen, when unaccompanied minors come across, they get processed, they get health care, they get housing, they get fed, they get on a charter plane. We ensure that they are met by government officials who then, who then reunite them with families there. This process is extremely meticulous. Nobody, no unaccompanied minor is just not just sent back. That has never been you the are, process. But you are, you got to tell the on, truth clear, about this. You are in favour of throwing them out. Well, are you telling the truth? Are you in favour of are you in favour of expelling unaccompanied minors? Yes or no? Well, do, do you, would you like to change the law under Title Forty Two? Let's argue about that. I mean, look, I, I think I'm, orphans I'm coming to the border. I'm I think happy it's a really Joe Biden but, is not expelling children. Are you happy about that or yeah, not? I, 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 I don't think young children. I don't think I, I think young children who are truly orphaned at our border. We we can take care of them, and we should we should put them through health and human services. I want to give you another statistic, though. Seventy-five percent of the supposed unaccompanied supposed minors are over fifteen years old, and vast majority are males. By the way, this is military age in a lot of in a lot of countries south of the border. So it, it, we're creating okay, a false narrative for people. It's not under U.S. law or basic that is, that is, morality. I mean, so no, now you're telling well, me that we're military should, should, should I any, gave you an well, example let me, of a four-year-old child. Let me child. ask you something. Should, well, yeah, I, don't, I think a four-year-old child we should take care of. I think there's a big difference between a four-year-old crying how child about, and a 17-year-old man. Would you agree with that? Congressman, how about... How about 12-year-old child Gustavo, who was sent back to Guatemala where his family are not, unaccompanied child with learning difficulties? Donald Trump sent him back. I think it's a good thing we're not doing that. If do, the Republican do, Party do, thinks it's a good thing to send those children back, say so. You don't think it's a good idea to reunite that person through government services in their home country with he their family? You don't he think wasn't that's reunited a good with his family. How do you he wasn't know? reunited with his family, unfortunately. How do you know? How did he end up at the board? Done. Maybe you should do some How did, how did he end up at the board? Look you're up Gustavo after the show is over. Let me ask. Let me ask you about. Let me ask you about what we talked about. What we were talking about on Twitter. You said to me on Twitter on Friday that the solution to all the border issues are the Trump policies. Remain in Mexico and asylum cooperation agreements with the Northern Triangle countries. Seventy thousand people were sent to Mexico under the Remain in Mexico policy. Out of one point five million people encountered at the border, that's less than five percent. That's hardly a solution. And do you know how many migrants were sent by the U.S. to Honduras and El Salvador under these what you called very important asylum cooperation agreements a moment ago? Do you know the number? Well, they're, they're not sent. The point of an asylum cooperation agreement is that you don't have to go to the human smuggling routes to get to the border and claim asylum. You can do it your home country or a neighboring country. So it's much more humane to do that instead of saying, hey, go, pay off these drug cartels. You know, drug cartels are making $30 million a month with, well, off of these policies. Now, now, to, now to, to reference the MPP program that you just talked about, yeah, they don't send everybody back to the MPP program. It's a portion of them. That, that's why it's such a small portion. 5%. But that's also what got the situation under. But that's what. Solution. When right, it's an incentive structure. So when people when people believe, hey, there's a chance I might just get sent out to, sent back to Mexico. I was going to claim asylum, um, even though you know I don't really have a valid claim to it. Okay, there's less of an incentive to just says come you. across. If people, if people, well, says the data, about 10% to 20% end okay. up being granted asylum. So that tells you something. Congressman, PolitiFact already checked you on this, and they said your claims on asylum uh, are false. We know that. But right, I, need, I need you to answer that. my question. So, so, well, let's address, let's address that. Let's address that because that's not a, that's not a fact check. I need you to answer my question. How many people were sent to El Salvador and Honduras under the asylum cooperation agreement? Uh, again, it's not a send back kind of agreement. 
Okay, but it was some are, but I don't have numbers on me. How many were sent? I, but how many were sent? I, I don't have that data. Roughly. I don't have that data on me. I'm not sure. Again, that, that policy is about Zero. claiming No one assignment. was ever sent. That's because that it's not. Yeah, no, it was I just explained to you what the policy is. You're, 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 you're not listening. It, but you're, you you're telling about? me that that was the, the, the solution the, that brought down the numbers. How could it bring no, down the numbers? you can apply for asylum there. It's, are you confused? No, the, the no, asylum cooperation agreement is, is... Congressman, yes. You're not. It was never not. implemented in El Salvador, Honduras, and only 945 people were sent to Guatemala. It's not about it's sending just, people. It's, it's about being able to apply to there. Is my point. It's, it, it's not yeah, and no one ever was sent there, is my point. It's not about sending people there. It's about being able to apply while you're there. You keep you. No, the asylum cooperation agreement was about sending something. people to Guatemala, Honduras, no, El Salvador. No, it's not. Lost. I need to ask. You're, you're okay. confused about you're, you're yes, confused about what that what okay. that policy is. I okay. I got to ask this last question about the migration. The MPP program, program is about sending smugglers. People. You talk about Mex. You talk MPP. You talk about it being a good way of stopping smugglers. Human rights groups like Human Rights First have found 1,500 people reports of abuse, kidnapping, murder, torture in Mexico. Thanks to this program, people on that program, MSF found three out of four of their patients sent to Mexico yep. under the Remain in Mexico program were kidnapped. You're okay with that? You're okay with the cost of that program, the human cost? It's not caused by that program. It's caused by human smuggling issues. Look, actually, DHS investigated those claims. And what they found, um, and by the way, those claims refer to about 1.5% of the total MPP population, okay, if we take them at face value. But those DHS concerned claims, about yeah. this. Invest the DHS investigated those claims, and they found that, yes, there's a possibility you're going to get assaulted. You might be back into the human smuggling routes if you leave the state-run facilities in Mexico. That's the truth. That's what the government investigation found. So, look, if you stay within the parameters of this facility, it was safe. And, and we should never want people to be unsafe. But but also, you know, and, and I got I to gotta fact check your fact check there on the PolitiFact thing. Look, just because you had a fact check to a title on an op-ed doesn't make it a fact check. The fact remains about 10% from northern tribal countries are adjudicated for granting asylum. Okay, that fact check was talking about the other 90%. And they claimed, oh, it's not because they're denied. Sometimes they don't show up and other administrative well, issues. We that was quibbling. It wasn't a fact check. Uh, I did look at the fact check, and many people would argue that the Trump administration made it impossible to apply for asylum here, which is one of the main reasons we have this crisis. I said it was going to happen. They're going to butt Trump through everything. They're just going to butt Trump, and they're allowed to, because here's Kamala, Kamula, Kamuja laughing about it. By the way, neither one of them salute the guards. But why is laughing so funny? It's kids in cages. And then you got Miss Perfect Press Secretary. So now that Border Patrol agents in the Rio Grande Valley are letting adult migrants go without even issuing notices to appear, is the 
by immigration policy just becoming more of like the honor system? That is an inaccurate depiction of what's happening uh, at the border. So there's no change in policy. The border remains closed. But if Secretary Mayorkas says the border is secure, the border is closed, how is that the case if these migrants are being processed on this side of the border and then put on a bus to points on unknown on this side of the border? Well, again, there are limited cases where uh, there are families uh, because they can't be held in Mexico. Uh, who are uh, who are processed, tested, considered uh, at uh, at the border? Most of them are uh, sent back to their home countries. Two years ago, President Biden said, "We are a nation that says you want to flee, and you're fleeing opposition. You should come. They deserve to be heard. That's who we are." Now he says, "I can say quite clearly, don't come over." So why was his position different campaigning than it is governing? Well, I think that. Sometimes there are uh, there are there's language that is used by some uh, that is not completely including the full context of his comments. So what is his concern about this being a super spreader event where you've got 400 uh, uh, kids stuffed into a pod built for 260? These kids are tested. Uh, if they need to be quarantined, they are quarantined. We also follow CDC guidelines to ensure that they are kept safe. We actually took the steps we did to keep these kids safe. But where else in the country would it be okay to have 400 people in a space for 260 during the pandemic? Well, again, Peter, our, we're closely following the CDC guidelines. That's why we're opening up additional facilities, why they've been at limited capacity in a number of these shelters. But if I may, I don't know that there are CDC guidelines that say you can be open. For the are you talking about the shelters or are you talking about the Border, the border Patrol? Facility? Apologies, I was misunderstanding yeah. your question. Yes. Look, I, I think our objective is to move. This is one of the reasons this is such a focus every single day for the president and this administration. We want to move these kids as quickly as possible through these facilities. I. How can you take these people serious? How can you take them serious? And as we transition to fucking COVID, I want you to see this. This is what I've been talking about. This is a Gallup poll. I'm going to put it across my face. This is what they've done to the American people on COVID. I don't know what's happening, but we got a howl fest upstairs. So let's just listen to the call of the wild for a second. I love animals, but sometimes it's a bit much. Three huskies. Two small dogs. And they're done. Okay, so. But look at what they've done to Democrats. They're so fucking scared and have so much misinformation. They don't want to live their fucking house. They just don't want to leave their fucking house. And then the media doesn't want to cover this. New York City judge removed six-year-old from mother because she didn't wear a mask while dropping her off at school. Blue check, college professor. This was a big deal, and I was going to do it as a segment, but I got so many segments today. They floated pictures of non-COVID beach and said it was spring break, and then got caught and pulled it back, and then it became a racist story 
because a bunch of African Americans were there and they were stealing shit and running. Not all the black people were doing it. I'm just saying, a bunch of African Americans were there, and during that time, people were taking running up two, three thousand dollar bar tabs and then leaving. And there were fights and fisticuffs and guns and bullshit. And then over the weekend, it changed from look at all those people fucking up during COVID to hey. You're a bunch of racists. Black people can't go to Miami Beach. And in line with those stats, update a public health precaution to stop the spread of COVID-19. The National Park Service will limit all vehicular and pedestrian access to the Tidal Basin Potomac Park and West Potomac Park, Potomac, sorry, Park during the blooming cycle of the cherry blossoms. Most of the country's Alive. Kicking. No mass. But you never let a crisis go to waste. And I'm supposed to believe that they're just going to take this gun. And, and I could have played for Tucker last night. Um, God, my brain just locked. African-American gun right activist. I can't remember his name. But he did a great segment on it. Because it's true. You do one, you're going to go for the next. You're going to defund my police. You're going to take away my ability to talk. I can't do this. I can't do that. Everybody's got to have a pronoun. Can't fucking gender your kids. Can't do that. Can't do this. You're a bunch of fucking fascists. Because there's no reason why people can't drive their fucking car through cherry blossoms. How are you going to get goddamn COVID in your fucking car driving past cherry trees? Ow! But yeah, I need to cover them. And it all gets just bookmarked into this fucking bullshit. Filibuster and statehood. Statehood is part of the movement for voting and social justice reform and ending the Senate filibuster. Garrett Hayes is on Capitol Hill. Um, Garrett, you know, do Democrats have enough momentum this time around to get D.C. statehood passed in the Senate? And how are they framing it differently? I'm intrigued, not just full disclosure as a D.C. resident, but I'm I'm intrigued by the idea that they're tying it to the, the broader issue of democracy reforms. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the idea here is who counts, who matters, who should be part of our democracy. D.C. has 700,000 residents, a plurality of them African-American. Right now, no voting representation in Congress. And so Democrats are linking the issue of D.C. statehood, not just to the representation of we 700,000 who live here, but also to the broader sort of democracy reforms questions, the filibuster. How does your vote count? What should be your available access to democracy? And so we will see this hearing today. We will likely see D.C. statehood pass in the House as it did during the last Congress. Then when it gets kicked over to the Senate, this is right in the sort of sweet spot for the debate about removing the filibuster, because it is possible to see how Democrats could get to 50 or maybe even 51 votes here. There's an interesting uh, possibility of Lisa Murkowski hanging out there from a state that was not always a state herself, being someone who might be in favor of adding D.C. uh, as the 51st state. But 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 the 
idea of getting this past the filibuster, again, it sort of links back in to that question of, of whose vote counts and how. But the other things that are going for D.C. statehood right now, it's gotten a lot more um, sort of national exposure around the issues of the protests here over the course of the summer and who's responsible for policing the district, the insurrection here at Capitol Hill and who's responsible for controlling the National Guard, which is supposed to protect right. the district in situations like that, and on COVID response in which D.C. and those 700,000 residents, more people than live in Vermont, didn't get treated with the same formula as other states and the way in which that held back the nation's capital's ability to respond to the COVID. And I, I have always been a champion of the filibuster. I didn't like when Harry Reid got rid of it for federal judges. I didn't like it when Mitch McConnell got rid of it for Supreme Court judges. But nothing's getting done in Washington. Nothing's going to get done. Elections are not going to have consequences if they don't do something significantly. I know Joe Biden is a traditionalist, but this ain't 1974. This isn't even 1994 or 2004. If Joe Biden, the president, wants to get anything done, if Republicans that are in the Senate want to get anything done when they're in the majority, they're, gonna, they're going to have to do something dramatic to make sure that 50 plus one wins the day in the United States Senate. Yeah, it, 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 it's, it's just not working again when over the past decade, the only major piece of legislation to pass through the House and the Senate and get signed by a president was Donald Trump's tax for billionaires. Tax. For many years, D.C. was affectionately known as Chocolate City. The vibrant black community defined this town and provided a professional and cultural scene rich in black joy, love, and excellence. But Congress continuously denied D.C. a locally elected government for much of its history. Now, today, the state of Washington, D.C. would be 46 percent black, which would make it the state with the highest percentage of black people in the entire country. And its congressional district would be a majority minority jurisdiction. I represent the Massachusetts 7th, majority-minority district in my home state. These districts are critical for making the needs of people of color, for ensuring our voices are heard in the policymaking process, and for diversifying the halls of Congress. Now, in the Senate today, there are only three black senators and not a single black woman in the entire body. The structure of the Senate gives disproportionate power to small, predominantly white states. It has been estimated that the Senate gives the average black person in America only 75% of the representation of the average white person in America. In the midst of our national reckoning on racism and those who are quick to quote Dr. King and John Lewis, um, but obstruct things like DC statehood, uplifting black political power must be a part of the conversation we cannot allow electoral justice for the people of Washington, D.C. to be denied any longer. Now, last year, the day before the House of Representatives passed H.R. 51, Senator Cotton said the following about the bill, quote, would you trust Mayor Bowser to keep Washington safe if she were given the powers of a governor? Would you trust Mary and Barry? Now, both Bowser and Barry, who died in 2014, are black. And even on the floor of the United States Senate, Senator Cotton apparently felt compelled to communicate to a certain audience. That wasn't a dog whistle. That was a bullhorn. <laughs> His objection to statehood was related to the possibility of an African-American governor. Now, he said this with full knowledge of the role white supremacy has played in our democracy. There have been only two black elected governors in the history of this country. Massachusetts had one of them, Deval Patrick. 
Now, in more than 230 years, only two black governors. I'm going to make it plain. D.C. statehood is a racial justice issue. And racism kills. And I don't just mean police brutality and hate crimes and food apartheid systems and transportation deserts and unequal access to health care. I mean all of that, too. But racism kills our democracy. Mr. Henderson, as someone who was both born and raised in D.C. and has been a national civil rights leader for many years, what role did race play in that denial? And what role does place race play in the opposition to H.R. 51? Thanks. This is not the first horrible, violent attack on their community. And so they've lived through a lot. Um, you know, in, in the Congress, as you mentioned, the House of Representatives last week, for the second time, we've passed two important initial pieces on, on gun violence prevention. The problem is in the Senate. Even with a majority, a slim majority, because of the filibuster, it's going to be very, very difficult to get anything done. You know, the filibuster to, to many of us is a, a tool, an instrument for government gridlock. And um, we need action and we need it right away. So what are you calling for today? Well, we need to do away with the filibuster. You know, the, what's, what's, what we're seeing happening in America is Republicans in the Senate are more interested in eroding voting laws and increasing um, gun rights when, you know, it really should be um, the other way around. We need to look at making sure that we have safe communities and that, that people aren't afraid and terrified of going to the grocery store or going to a school. And the majority of Americans support common sense gun violence prevention legislation, and, and but we, we can't get anything done in the Senate because a majority doesn't rule. It's the filibuster that rules. Do you think that will be the upshot of what these tragedies are. I mean, as you know, President Biden has not sound, sounded inclined to do away with the filibuster. Do you think that that's what this will lead to? I really hope so, Allison, because the inaction that's occurred is costing people their lives. The, the, El Paso knows only too well. You know, we suffered a horrific uh, attack on our community on August 3rd, 2019. I had hoped that that would have been a wake up call, not just on gun violence, but on our hate epidemic in this country. But if, if Congress can't act or won't act because of one vehicle, which is the filibuster, let's do away with it and give the American public, the majority of the American public, the reform that they're asking for. Now, while they're letting these people get on TV and say, we need to get rid of our whole fucking electoral process, we need to make statehoods, pack courts, do all this shit so that nobody ever runs the country other than Democrats, they're not talking about trying to steal the seat from a recounted district in Iowa. Nancy Pelosi's trying to get rid of the lady because she only won by six votes. And they recounted it. But we're not covering that. That's not anti-democratic. That's not a sedition. Byron York on the filibuster. In April 2017, less than four years ago, a majority of Senate Democrats spoke up in support of the filibuster. They would then they would then embrace a relic of our racist past. And why would they quickly change their mind? What a filibuster Democrats may finally axe a relic of our racist past. CNN Politics, March 20th. They used it all the time. Joe Biden fires North Carolina U.S. attorney who just charged 24 people with voter fraud. 
Yeah. Robert Reich. ACLU. A reminder for members of Congress as they head into hearing on D.C. statehood. This is a racial justice issue. The ACLU is just hot fucking garbage now. Greg, please demonstrate how the political power of black people is being suppressed by the government. Robert Reich, D.C. is 46% black and has zero senators. Wyoming is 1% black and has two senators. D.C. has 120,000 more people than Wyoming. Opposition to D.C. statehood is racist, period. This is a racial justice issue at its core. D.C. statehood now. The world. Come on, man. New York Times, Benjamin Applebaum and Vox Aaron Rupar try to, well, actually GOP, well, whatever. The Founding Fathers, this is a conservative, Mike Rounds. The Founding Fathers never intended for Washington, D.C. to be a state. D.C. statehood is really about packing the Senate with Democrats in order to pass a left-wing agenda. Just look at the D.C. photo registration. 76.4% Democrat, 5.7% Republican. Journalist! Laugh out loud. The Founding Fathers also didn't intend for South Dakota to be a state. That's a journalist. That's a journalist. I mean, yeah. That's a journalist. That's good shit right there. That's what it's all about. It's all about power. None of these are about the real issues. None of it's about dead people. None of it's about changing systems to make people safe. It's all about fucking power. They just want power. So let's do a tranny segment because this is about power too. A, 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 Bow, Bow. Little pump in the cut. Hey, gang shit, 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 gang shit. An exclusive reveal here on GMA: the first Black and Asian American transgender model to appear in the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue. Lena Bloom is a trailblazer, but it wasn't easy getting here. Juju Chang spoke with her about her journey. Good morning, Juju. Good morning, Robin. You know, Lena Bloom lost a college dance scholarship when she transitioned, and for years she struggled against hate and prejudice. But by landing in this iconic swimsuit edition, Sports Illustrated is telling the world that true beauty is not about size or shape or the color of your skin, but how confident you are in who you are. This morning, actress, dancer, and activist Lena Bloom making history as the first black and Asian American transgender Sports Illustrated swimsuit model. How big a milestone was it when you found out that this was going to be in your future? I never imagined that I would be born in a time when, uh, uh, when something like this would happen for someone with my skin tone and with someone with my background. What do you say to the women who think, oh, the swimsuit edition is just about objectifying women? This is a magazine that says we are allowed to be beautiful in all our shapes and sizes and that should be that should be loved because we're not often seen in that way. The model following in the footsteps of Brazil's Valentina Sampaio, who just last year became the first transgender woman to appear in the iconic issue. Lena, she walked on that set and she owned it. And, and that's what I want for every woman, you know, to feel in their life like they have a seat at the table, they have a right to be there. Bloom's path to fame wasn't always an easy road. You, like many 
trans young adults faced homelessness. I've dealt with homelessness throughout my life. So when I moved to New York City and being homeless on the trains or being homeless for on, on, on like, you know, the benches, it was a homeless for a purpose. It wasn't just homeless to be homeless. You know, I knew that this was a this is what I needed to do to get to where I needed to be. You still and was, had the dream. Yeah, I still had the dream. The dream was feeding me when I was starving in my body. For Bloom, that now is filled with designer campaigns and turns on the catwalk. And she's no stranger to firsts. In 2019, Bloom starring in Port Authority, the first feature film to premiere at the Cannes Film Festival, which included a transgender woman of color in a leading role. So what do they do in this category? It's for the film queens. She told you she was trans, right? You met me at a ball. This is my family. Like, you can't see things on just the surface level. And she's just getting started. She says visibility is a key to progress. We need to constantly remind ourselves to protect those people in our society that are destined, that are different, that are beautiful uniquely as themselves to go out in the world and do what they're destined to do, which is to challenge society to make it better for everyone else. Lena calls her dad her superhero because as a single parent, he supported her every step of the way. She also has tons of praise for former NBA superstar Dwayne Wade, who reached out to her with words of wisdom and encouragement because he too is raising a transgender daughter with an open heart, Robin, and lots of love. I'm glad they're, they're all getting the love that they need. Juju, thank you. And I know you have much more with her because you have an exclusive interview. Lena, Nightline, 12.35 a.m. Eastern, right here on ABC. So much more to the story. Sawyer is an old soul. She is our uh, spunky and creative kiddo. Sawyer also happens to be a transgender girl. I remember the first time she was out in the community wearing the clothing she wanted in her hair and she kind of was herself. And that was the first day where I saw her. She has always been super gender creative and hair has been a big part of her transition. Once she told us that she identified as a girl, she immediately wanted to grow her hair out. It made me feel good and confident, and it made my insides match my outsides. This was a kid who knew who she was from such a young age. And as a mom, you always worry about your kids being um, loved and accepted. So I'm always telling Sawyer to never hide who she is, always be herself, never be afraid to step out and exist as the person that she is. Our family motto is everybody loves everybody no matter what path you follow. It means I can be who I am no matter what. It doesn't matter because everybody loves me. My advice is just be yourself and don't let anybody tell you who you are. Hiya, my name is Sinead and I want to talk to you about Detrans Awareness Day and about why it's so important. 
So D-Trans Awareness Day falls on March 12th, and it is a day dedicated to spreading awareness about detransition and about elevating the voices of those who go through it. So detransition is the secession of a medical gender transition. So that's those of us who suffered from gender dysphoria, who went to a gender clinic, who were evaluated, diagnosed, and then offered medical transition as treatment only to, for one reason or another, decide to cease that treatment and thus detransition. And there are, you know, a variety of reasons as to why someone would choose to detransition. Um, some people detransition due to health concerns or health problems, due to the risks that come with cross-sex hormones and surgeries. Some people detransition due to a lack of care and support from friends and family, partners, co-workers and things like that and other people detransition due to experiencing transition regret, realising that transition was a mistake and therefore detransitioning. Unfortunately, I belong to the latter group. I experienced transition regret. I had injected testosterone for four and a half years. I underwent a double mastectomy, only to very gradually realise over time that I had made a massive mistake and wanted to detransition. And the latter group, the people who experience transition regret, are subject to an utterly undeserved stigma. We are very often bullied and insulted and silenced whenever we try to share our experiences online. And it's because people who discuss transition regret are often accused of having our stories and our experiences weaponized to harm our trans brothers and sisters. That's not what I want. That's not what D-Trans Day of Awareness is about. We don't want to take healthcare away from trans people. We want the improvement of care for people with gender dysphoria because transition does help a lot of people. There are so many trans men and trans women out there who have massively benefited from transition. No one's denying that, but there are also a growing number of people who went through medical transition who deeply regret it, who were harmed by it physically and mentally, and we deserve the right to talk about our experiences just as much as someone who doesn't regret it has a right to talk about their experiences. The reason why so many people who suffer from transition regret are so afraid to speak out is because they will be insulted, they will be laughed at, they will be mocked, they will be told it's all your fault. They will be told they're hateful. They will be told they're trying to, to harm trans people or take care away from them. And we shouldn't have to endure that because it's not what we want. What we want with D-Trans Awareness Day is to show other detransitioners you're not alone. You have nothing to be ashamed of. And if you want to speak out, you should be able to do so freely without being ashamed or afraid or intimidated. We're calling for better care and support for people who go through detransition. There should be alternative therapeutic treatments for people suffering from gender dysphoria, because as I said, lots of people uh, flourish after transition, lots of people are harmed by it and want to detransition. So we don't want to remove trans care, but we do want it to be improved so that those being treated for gender dysphoria don't just have the one treatment option. We need a variety of options. 
On a case-by-case -case basis, individuals should be given intense therapy so that we can discover whether or not transition is likely to help them. Many detransitioners report that they were suffering from depression or anxiety or had dealt with trauma or had an eating disorder or body dysmorphia or a whole variety of other issues and rather than those issues being addressed at the clinic they were simply affirmed and allowed to transition. So it's almost inevitable that we have a growing number of detransitioners and we want to talk about that and spread awareness about it on Detrans Awareness Day so that more people come together and say this isn't good enough. We need alternative therapeutic treatments and we need the establishment of a medical care model for those who do T-transition. And when we go to our doctors and say, I'm going to detransition, can you help me? The doctor says, yes, I can. And here's what I'm going to do. Because right now, as it stands, when we go to our doctors and say, I'm going to detransition, can you help me? They'll say, I don't know what that means. I don't know what to tell you. Gender isn't my area of expertise. You should probably go back to the gender clinic. And the reason why so many of us are so hesitant to go back to our gender clinics is because when you have been misdiagnosed or if you have been given a treatment that has ultimately harmed you, do you really think people are going to want to go back to those clinics? I certainly didn't. So we need more research into detransition. We need more information that is going to be available for those who are detransitioning so that we know what's going to happen. When I began my detransition, I had no idea what was going to happen when I stopped taking my testosterone. I had no idea what coming off testosterone after a double mastectomy was going to do. Was it going to do anything? I had no idea if I was going to get my hair back. I had no idea if my beard was going to go away. I had no idea if my voice was going to get higher. I had no idea and I wasn't invited back to the clinic for blood tests so I thought oh my god have I wrecked my health have I wrecked my body is there anything that I can do and I got no answers I got no support my doctors and therapists and counsellors didn't know what to say to me and I am not the only detransitioner who's experienced this I have spoken to dozens and dozens of detransitioners who have said there is no help there is no support or if there is it's really uninformed. It's an area still in its infancy. And with D-Trans Awareness Day, not only do we want to say to other detransitioners, you have a right to speak. You shouldn't be silenced and you shouldn't be too embarrassed to talk about it. And you deserve proper care. So on D-Trans Awareness Day, we are asking people to share the hashtag, to share videos, to share posts or stories, to spread the experiences of detransitioners and to join us in asking for better support, better medical care, more treatments to be offered to people who are suffering from gender dysphoria so we can do everything in our power that we currently have to stop detransition from becoming commonplace. Where our numbers are growing more and more all the time and the only way we're going to stop that from happening isn't by silencing us or bullying us or pretending we don't exist. It's by acknowledging us, acknowledging that transition regret can happen, that detransition is happening 
and that we deserve a voice, that we deserve support and that we deserve care just as much as everybody else does. Thank you for listening and I hope you share for us. It's actually very sad. When I did this segment on the show, and I can't find it because back in the day I didn't label things and really put definitions on everything. Just go to Walt Hare. And if you go to his site, it is scary. And remember, that's a guy who was a girl who went back to being a guy. And then he studied it. And all the GLAD surveys, everything you get is self-survey. And on average, 80% of the people didn't respond after a certain time because they stopped doing it. It's a fad. There are people, I am sure, who are true. They believe there's something else. I still believe it's a mental illness, but that's not the majority. But now with this new policy of, hey, we're going to we're gonna force parents to let their three-month-old take fucking estrogen and by 10 chop their cock... This is dangerous shit. It's child abuse. If you're 18, be a fucking goat. I don't care. None of my business. But it's child abuse any other way. NCAA under fire for how men's teams are treated versus the women. Sabrina Lascascu. Women's NCAA bubble weight room versus men's weight room. Though this was a joke, what the fuck is this? To all the women playing in March Madness tournaments, keep grinding. Yahoo Sport. The NCAA released a statement addressing the weight room and other amenities of the women's place. No! No, I say! You woke motherfuckers say their gender is a construct. But if I say mom, I'm a transphobe. There isn't women's basketball. There's not men's basketball. You don't get special treatment because you're a woman. You don't even get recognized as a woman. This is your world. You built this. Live in it. And shut the fuck up. Lena Dunham inflicted new generation of woke porn watching queer teens on viewers. I, I don't want to cover that. Feminist empowers women by blaming good, faithful, responsible men for women's emotional problems. Her name is Holly Stalkup. Men, please start therapy now. You can literally tell your, your you therapist. Holly on Twitter told me to come here. If you think you don't have anything to talk about. The amount of weight and suffering women are carrying because men who don't who won't do their own work makes me physically ill. And y'all, I'm talking about good men putting women through exhausting, unnecessary pain and confusion because they've not done any of the hard work or reflecting on themselves. I'm not referring to bad guys. I'm talking about good, faithful, responsible men causing harm. I'm blown away by women I know seeking out health and wholeness with great effort and sacrifice. There are so many of us. I'm tired of men being drugged behind them toward healing, if seeking at all. Exhaust, exhausting seeing men only seek therapy after a woman has asked them to. I don't care if you're married, single, or wanting partnership, or single and planning for long-term singleness. Go work out your stuff. You go shut the fuck up, you transphobe. And by the way, in this house, I carry my load emotionally and literally. And I've done chores since I was a kid because I was raised by a woman who made me iron, sew, wash dishes, cook, and I went to a therapist. My wife didn't. Documented on the show. Online violence. International Women's Media Foundation calls for immediate end of violent behavior against Taylor Lorenz. 
Not covering it. Just saying, once again, no. She's not a woman. She is not gendered. I can assure you I'm the CEO of this house. Women blister Jill Filpovic over a thread claiming husbands are bosses. This is good advice, but man, I feel for this letter writer because it's exactly how I would feel if my spouse decided they wanted to be a stay-at-home parent. Also, it is really only her decision wanting to quit working when she's then going to be entirely dependent on him. I realize this is like the third rail of mommy wars, but yeah, lots of super ambitious people marry other super ambitious people because they're attracted to ambition. I would have to really, really hard time being married to a spouse who chose not to work. I would also argue that when you're married, no, you don't get to decide these things unilaterally. If I came to my husband and I said, I'm going to quit my job and dedicate all my time to keeping our household now, I need your income, I think he's in his right to say, no, blah, 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 and boom. You don't win in work wars, folks. You don't win in work wars. That's against everything. But she's starting to change. She was a fucking a fucking feminazi, but now this trans stuff ain't making her confused. Straight Lives Matter rapper advocates for heterosexual rights movement. She's already canceled. <laughs> it's a byline. What's her name? Uh, lip gloss. Right out the gate, you fucked yourself. Wokeness comes to corporate America. Cigna employs critical race. Let's look at the critical race. I I actually did this one. Hold on. And we're getting there. We're getting there. We're getting there. We're getting there. I fucked this up. I was supposed to have it ready. Oh, no. There we go. Let's make it small. And I'm all fucked up. I'm all fucked up with no place to go. Boom. There you go. So, this is a major company. The books. That's what they're supposed to read. Check your privilege. The societal norms checklist. Able-bodied, age, Christian, cis male, heterosexual, upper class, white. This is why we had the Boulder shooter. So, if you're white, you just have a privilege. doesn't matter you're poor. This company, one employee told the Washington Examiner, another time an employee suggested a candidate with years of industry industry experience. That employee was informed by the hiring manager that the candidate, a white man, could not be interviewed because he wasn't diverse. It's the same old shit. This shit is, it's going to ruin America. It's going to ruin America. This is the reason why we have violence in our streets. And if you think Boulder's a one-off, Going forward, I will guarantee there'll be more people searching out white people and killing them. And the media will just say gun violence. But if the inverse was true, oh, no, 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 no. Then there was this one. I didn't cover this very deeply, and I should have. A group of teachers and others in Loudoun County compiled a list of parents suspected of disagreeing with school actions, in part to infiltrate, to use hackers to silence parents' communication and expose these people quickly. Their opponents were those who objected to, sought to debate, or were even simply neutral about critical race theory, a radical philosophy exposed, opposed by many liberals and conservatives, but increasingly embraced by governments. A one-time high school Latin teacher put one man on his list for asking how Dr. Seuss was racist. The group erred on the side of convincing the innocent, convicting the innocent rather than letting a guilty party go free. 
the group of radicalized suburban white women in wealthy Loudoun whose schools sub- subject all staff to equity training and speak of racism as a dire pervasive threat at times, use violent language while doing battle with what they imagine to be evil. One listed those who had questioned government officials. Ian Pryor spoke about First Amendment concerns. Austin Levine criticized the school board. She then changed her Facebook profile to say, I don't argue people who Harriet Tubman would have shot. It's fascism. Fascism. And now... The Boston Globe has signed on the number one fascist in the race-hustling industry. I'm Ibram X. Kendi, and I direct the Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research. Excited to be announcing The Emancipator, which is a periodical that will marry the best of, of scholarship and the best of journalism to really comment on and report on and analyze and and find the truth about the racial problems of our time. I'm Bina Venkatraman and I'm the Boston Globe's editorial page editor. The Emancipator aims to resurrect and reimagine anti-slavery publications in the 19th century for the 21st century and the movement to achieve racial justice. Today we are in African, the African Meeting House uh, in, in downtown Boston, which is quite possibly the the citadel of of anti-slavery activity in the United States. So this is really a hallowed space for the movement for freedom. That call for freedom has has continued to echo since the American Revolution. And, And I think that call for freedom will continue to echo in the Emancipator. Boston has such a rich and storied tradition with newspapers. Of course, the Boston Globe is part of that, but also part of that are the anti-slavery newspapers that were based here in the 19th century and that helped bring about abolition of slavery in the United States. I'm excited even about the title of, of our periodical, The Emancipator, which is, which is named after the first anti-slavery periodical that was founded in 1820. To be part of that line of history uh, and newspaper tradition is just an important opportunity and I think a really important thing for the Boston Globe to be part of uh, in this era. Even when the Emancipator was first founded in 1820, it was was very difficult for people to believe that slavery, 45 years later, would, would, would be no more. Just as I think there are many people today who can't imagine that there could be a nation without racism and inequality. To imagine that society, we need to enrich our debates, enrich our conversations. And so I think this is an opportunity for journalists to be engaged in something historic, to be part of forging a conversation on racial justice and anti-racism today uh, in a way that's really exciting. I'm Kimberly Atkins, and I'm lead columnist for The Emancipator. I'm also the author of the newsletter for the project, which is called Unbound. That name comes from one of the first issues of one of the first abolitionist newspapers that was published out of Boston, and I think it's a perfect thing to call the newsletter. You know, I think now is the perfect time to have a venture like this. For the last year, we have seen protests and people crying out for racial justice, and a lot of times that focus is on criminal justice reform. 
and not on all the other areas where justice is needed. And I think the Emancipator is a perfect vessel to really examine all of these systems where anti-racist solutions are needed to address these inequities. In the 19th century, it was anti-slavery and abolitionist periodicals that were at the center of that push for liberty. And in many ways, we want the Emancipator uh, to, to, to be at the center of that push in the 21st century for equality so this nation can truly uh, live up to those ideals of, of liberty and, and equality for all. People know that opinion journalism provokes controversy or that it provokes conversation or that it even provokes uh, anger or outrage. But to me, great opinion journalism also provokes progress. And I think that's what the opportunity here is to do, is to do what those great uh, abolitionist writers and editors and thinkers did in the 19th century today, which is to say, uh, we're going to provoke progress through a platform for opinion journalism grounded in evidence, grounded in scholarship, and grounded in data. But what the fucking fuck? Jokes come, come right off this. Democrats still want the get-out-of-jail-free card, but they're already fucking doing it. New rule, everyone splits all the money equally. Everyone wins, no one loses. Game over. So are all the properties going to be the same price, or will the government help us out if we can't pay for our rent? The idiocy of Hasbro wokeness notwithstanding, I'm reminded of a comedic genius, Stephen Wright, Rye Observation. I don't think it's fair that only one company makes the game Monopoly. That's pretty funny. You fucking people. You fucking people. Jesus, J. Jehoshaphat. What the fucking fucking fuck with the fuck fuck is wrong with you? But there's a funny to end this show off. Dems question lack of AAPI cabinet members in the Biden administration. Democrats confront Washington White House over lack of AAPI cabinet representation. Democrat Senator Duckworth, backed up by Senator Horazno, who got the dictionary changed, so she's a powerful bitch, confronted White House Deputy SOS General Malley Dillon last night over the presence of AAPI representation with President Biden's cabinet. Three Senate aides familiar with the call tells you. Yeah. News traffic. News rating. When allergies plummet, post Trump, which shut the fucking fuck up. Shut up. I don't want to listen to Zeitzel. Maybe I should try that. Oh no, that's that's not an allergy. Date from the media firm Comscore, as well as the Nielsen Company, indicate drops in traffic across websites for the Post, which lost roughly one fourth of its monthly web traffic, as well as the New York Times, which lost seventeen. In the cable news rating wars, CNN lost nearly 50% of its primetime audience. MSNBC lost more than fourth. And Fox News lost just 6%. The rating drop followed prediction from CNN. Jeff Sucker, who in 2019 told Vanity Fair, anytime you break away from Trump, you're going to be fucked. Comments on this. 
which is another thread. CNN has lost 45% of the primetime audience. Why aren't Brian Seltzer and Oliver Darcy done stories on why their ratings have plummeted? Tom Gara, CNN has lost 40% of its primetime audience. MSDNC has lost 28%. Fox News has essentially regained its leading position by standing still. Breaking 911. Same, same. Drake, this is what happens when main news story is Orange Man bad. The effect of the media going on a honeymoon. Oh, there's also no more Orange Man. Basically, after the impeachment trial, they don't have anything to talk about. Why haven't they done a story on at, at Rupar's seriously bad hot take on the Georgia Sheriff's Officer's comment last week on the spa murders? That was the biggest media story of the week, but I don't recall anyone over there talking about it. Because of course they didn't. They were talking about fucking Tucker Carlson. So now, let's do some funny shit. I got a Carpe Dunkum, and Matt in Oregon sent me a really good cartoon on Biden versus Stairs. And I know the effects, the aftermath, the trauma, psychological, physical, mental. It can be terrifying waking up every day feeling unsafe in your own body. But we're here to remind you that it's important to reach out to someone in your life that you can trust and to know that they will be there to help you. There will be someone to listen. Because you know what? It's on us. Visiting Angel. America's Choice in Home Care. That is some funny shit. That visiting angel, that's a whole, that's like from 2019, but I never saw it. And then, of course, Matt and Oregon said that Freedom Tunes. That's some good shit. They're already starting a new process. I saw it last night on the Tucker Show where you must say the Biden Harris administration. He's gone. He won't even make it the year. He just won't. I wanted to take a pause to recognize a really good actor, um, George Segal passed away yesterday for complications from an operation. And back before I tried to go woke in the last season, it's been kind of lame. Um, man, we were we were Goldberg fans. So, God be with his family. He was a great guy, and he was super duper funny. Let me go the right way. So this wraps up another episode of Flyover Politic Podcast. Please share this with your family and friends. Leave comments by going to foppodcast.com. See the video at foppodcast.com. Hear the audio at foppodcast.com. If you're a purist, go to SoundCloud to get all of the audio of 530 some on episodes. And the video, you can go to Rumble. Both links are at foppodcast.com. I had a soapbox section, but kind of ran out of time trying to keep this around two and a half hours. So we'll take the soapbox into the next one. Make sure you disconnect from all your devices. Don't give the yeah yes. Enjoy your family. And don't forget to watch the dirt races starting tonight. Uh, we're watching uh, the iCart race 
the truck race is on Friday. Saturday is another race, and then Sunday is the big race. So we're going to watch that. That'll be kind of interesting. That's in Bristol, Tennessee, which is going to be kind of neat. We're going to watch that one. Um, once again, I thank you all for watching and listening. I appreciate everybody who's stayed with the show for so long. I hope you at least get a little entertained out of it, and maybe you learn a few things along the way. I know I do. Y'all take care out there, and I will see you Sunday, 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 the 28th, for our next exciting show.